Thank you, Jolene. It's good to be back. Sharon and I were 15 days in Southern California and Phoenix. Didn't have to use our seat warmer at all compared to when I entered into Washington State. But it was great to be away, and we thought of you a lot and missed you. Um, and we're so glad to be back here with you. How many got the email this week with the sermon title? What do you think? You're ready. Did anyone invite a, a friend with them because the title was intriguing? So this is the sermon title if you didn't get the email. If you don't get the emails, get a hold of Joanne and get, give us your email address. It's called the Sausage Rebellion of 1552. First of all, known as the Affair of the Sausages. And I'm glad they changed the idea because it was a rebellious act to eat sausages on this day in 1552. I hope you are intrigued. Do we have our sausage maker here this morning? We have the manager of uh, our meatpacking plant up on the hill, but I'll see he's here today. How many of you have made your own sausages? Hands up, let's go. I, I, I know this is a German thing to do, right? Make your own sausages. I know, Joanne, your family makes sausages all the time, and you get a couple feet of them uh, after you make them, so it's great. So here's, here it is, your pastor's away for three weeks, thinking about his sermon coming back. And this is a big idea your pastor has. Might be time for a new pastor. <laughs> a sermon about sausages. So I emailed Mark and said, come up with some songs that have to do with sausages. <laughs> he had trouble. Uh, but there are songs about rebellion, um, and we sang a little bit about that, just our, our sinful inclinations and how we need to go to Jesus with them. So we, we understand maybe how I might be speaking of rebellion and sausages, maybe not so much. So I want to do a fair bit of church history with you this morning. I want to take hours and hours and hours of church history class and put it into about 10 or 15 minutes. I obviously will not cover things. But this has to do with church history. 1552 is the year 1552. And it's just a few years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the wall uh, against the indulgences of the Catholic Church. <clears throat> So, and I want to connect it to Lent because Joe talked about Lent a few weeks ago, and we have done Lent in different ways here at our church. We're not, our denomination is not a Lent emphasis denomination as opposed to some others, but a few years ago we did a few things. And so some of you might not have a clue what Lent means. Some of you might have grown up in the Catholic Church. And you know what Lent is, and you need to threw the baby out with the bathwater um, and uh, gave up Lent altogether. Um, I know, Barb, you grew up in the Catholic Church. Where is Barb? She's there. She still calls me Father. <laughs> so, so sometimes the way you grew up in the church tradition is, is hard to, to not remember some of those things. So what, what did Lent mean to me when I was growing up? I, I grew up going to uh, a United Church, and I don't remember anything about Lent. 
um, it's kind of an interesting word to me. It means borrow, you know, like I lent somebody $50 or I lent someone my lawnmower, the bank lent me money. So what is lent? Um, and why 40 days? So my first connection was in 1988. I was with Campus for Christ working with the University of Manitoba and become friends with the president of the student body there. His name was Reese. And he showed up to school one day in March with a gray mark on his forehead. And I had no idea what that meant. It was Ash Wednesday. Um, then I read Lee Iacocca's autobiography. Lee Iacocca, he's the one that gave us the uh, 67 Mustang. And he gave us the K car. And the minivans started with him. And I remember reading it, and he grew up, and he grows up, and he's a part of the Catholic Church. And I remember reading in there, uh, he gave up scotch for Lent. And I never really understood how that meant. Well, if you still think scotch is good for you, but why just do it for 40 days a year? I, I had no clue. So I received Jesus at age 21, and the churches I went to did not practice Lent. I learned about it in church history classes, but we didn't practice it. We didn't practice it. You will notice we've done Lent here at Rodney with no solid structure. Um, in the past, uh, we gave up little square cloth, uh, little, little squares of sackcloth to people. If you remember, we did that a few years back. And it was the idea to commemorate what Ash Wednesday commemorates is as we move into the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, we need to have a sense of we're entering into a time of death. This is solemn. This is serious. Jesus dying for us and all that he went through. So we've done that. Uh, we've done four sermons, the different themes of Lent. Um, and this week, it's kind of been a hodgepodge of in a way, and Joe started it. And uh, so I kind of want to conclude here before we move to Palm Sunday. So here's some church history for you. Uh, I hope you're interested. Church history was the only history class I ever loved taking. I remember when I went off to university in Nova Scotia, uh, one of the courses we had to take to finish my degree was a history course, and so I took Acadian history. <laughs> I didn't really care um, about the Scots coming into Nova Scotia. I guess I should have because I'm partly Scottish. Um, but uh, so, but when I got to Bible College and took church history, it was alive. We had a tremendous professor named Charles Weaver. So here's a bit of church history of Lent and then kind of what led the Sausage Rebellion of 1552. So in AD 13, the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and he made it legal, even preferable, for Roman citizens to become Christian. So he's trying to be, have the Christian faith become with the state. No separation. And the state says you must be Christian. So some of the church had a lot of adult baptism to celebrate because a lot of people who were coming out of the pagan religions needed to be baptized, and so there was now adults, people who were maybe not believing, but they, I'm going to become a Christian because it's good to keep my place in the state, in the government. But that created a challenge. How was the church supposed to ensure that people who wanted to be baptized were serious about Jesus? And what did the church need to do to shape these new Christian lives? Baptism alone was not enough, more was needed to form these new Christians as disciples of Jesus. So they developed a 40-day course of preparation for baptism, a time of Bible study, catechism study, and spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting. It was a supercharged 40-day spiritual adventure 
or as Rick Warren might call it, 40 days of purpose. Um, the idea was that during those 40 days, believers should be either preparing for their own baptism or encouraging someone who was preparing for baptism. It was not necessarily a time of focusing on the suffering and death of Jesus. It became focusing on our union with Christ, which is connected to Christ's death and resurrection and baptism. In terms of doctrine, this put the emphasis not only on God's gift of forgiveness, justification, but also on the gift of new life in Christ. So it was 40 days of classes like this, justification and our new life in Christ. Lent was a time for new, and that's why it's called Lent, by the way, Lent is the Latin word for 40 days. So it was a time for new and better Christians to live into, to practice the basic movements of the Christian life, to deny oneself, to turn to Jesus, to put off gossip and bitterness and other things, and put on patience and compassion. Just as athletes need to drill key skills and musicians need to practice scales, so too Christians need to practice self-denying and self-giving love. So that's how this idea of 40 days of Lent began, 40 days of preparation for baptism. Now we move to the 1500s or the 16th century, and we get into the Reformation with Luther. At that time, the memory of Lent as a season for shaping new Christians had long faded. Adult baptisms were rare because everyone was baptized as an infant. The Lenten disciples, the Lenten disciplines were still practiced, but they were often imposed by the church in a distorted way as a means of purity and favor with God. You want to make sure you get into the kingdom, have eternal life, don't spend a whole lot of time in purgatory. Do these things. Do these things. And they were called indulgences. We'll get there in a minute. There were other practices as well that people could do to increase their chances of going to heaven. So that, that's just a really rough idea <laughs> on why the Reformation came. Um, so 1517, Martin Luther, 95 theses or statements, paragraphs, laying out the theological problem with indulgences. What's an indulgence, you say? I hope you say. An indulgence is this. It's the Latin word for permit. It's a way to reduce the amount of punishment one has to undergo for sins. So the Catholic Church had arranged all kinds of things to do or to practice to cover your sins. And Luther's going, what? It's not what the book of Romans is about. That's what the book of Galatians is about. It's not what the words of Jesus are about. He covers all of our sin. We don't have to do anything to cover the maybe 2 or 3% that the death of Jesus doesn't cover. And so he had all these indulgences. And one of the, one of the big ones that drew him, made him crazy and, and would hopefully make you crazy was they believed that you didn't go immediately to heaven. There was a purgatory. And you would have to burn off some of your sins. The, the death of Christ didn't take away all your sins. And they needed to raise money to get the Vatican going and all the beautiful things you see in Rome when you're there. And so they had a guy named John Tetzel, and he would go around and he would say, for every coin you put into the... It, yeah, you put money into the coffers. Every, every coin you bring... Out of purgatory, the soul rings. Something like that. Oh, no, every coffer, every coin. I should have looked this up. You get the idea. You throw coins in there and it rings, and when you do that, it brings somebody out of purgatory. So now you can give money to the church and get your grandpa out of purgatory. 
Luther's going, this is not the gospel. So he wrote his thesis in 1517. Three years later, he was excommunicated because the Pope Leo wanted to, you, you, gotta, you can't stand on this. You have to denounce this. He said, no, here I stand. I stand on this. Jesus paid it all. Sola Scriptura, thank you. Scripture alone, that's where I'm going for, for how I know I'm saved. Scripture alone. He was ex excommunicated. He needed to escape, and they were after him for years and years to try to kill him for heresy. But Lent had been hopelessly superstitious to many people. Oh, good, I've got my 40 days of Lent coming up, and I'll do all these things, and, you know, then it's kind of replaced the idea of Jesus dying for you, right? That's what happened. So, Come to the Sausage Rebellion, 1522. And it sparked a reformation in Zurich, Switzerland. Ulrich Zwingli. Oli, you named after him? Yeah. yeah. Ulrich Eichstad Zwingli. <laughs> a pastor in Zurich, Switzerland. He spearheaded an event by publicly speaking in favor of all things eating sausages during the Lenten season. So he did a big sermon on you can eat meat during Lent and we're going to eat sausage. And in this event, they actually ate smoked dried sausage for a year. It was very hard. Stingley defended this action in a sermon called Regarding the Choice and Freedom of Foods. He'd taken some of those verses in Romans, especially to talk about we're free to eat meat, right? And he says, so why are you denying yourself meat during Lent? And it was out of Martin Luther's doctrine of sola scriptura that Christian sola scriptura, meaning only the Bible, that Christians are free to fast or not to fast because the Bible does not prohibit the eating of meat during Lent, and it doesn't. But we'll get into why I think Lent, the ideas of Lent, can be a good thing. Joe talked a bit about that. So, Ulrich, I love saying that, Ulrich Zingli's first rift with the established religion authorities in Switzerland, Switzerland occurred during this Lenten fast of 1522 in Switzerland. He was present during the eating of the sausages at the house of Christopher Froschar, a printer in the city who later published Zingli's translations of the Bible. In March 1522, he was invited to partake in the sausage supper that Froschar served to his workers. This is the sausage rebellion of 1522. Everyone want to go back and take the church history class? There's more exciting things in there. And because the eating of meat during Lent, and again, this is a government thing. Everyone had to obey the government. And so the eating of meat during Lent was massive rebellion. Much more than going to Ottawa with some trucks. The event caused public outcry and led to Froschauer being arrested. He got arrested for serving sausage. I mean, this is, this is the connection of the Catholic Church and the government. So this was the beginning of what we call the Radical Reformation. The Reformation of 1517 was Luther's, the beginning of the Reformation. And then we went radical. We started eating sausages during Lent. And those of us in the Mennonite Brethren stream, you know what we're called? Anabaptists. And that means another baptism because all the early 
believers, and they weren't Mennonites then, Menno was just starting to arrive on the scene, Menno Simons, they read their scriptures and they saw, well, I was baptized as an infant. The Bible seems to talk more about being baptized as a believer. And so then they had anabaptism. That's the stream we're from, literally, because we would go to a stream and get fully dunked, fully immersed as a believer. Again, that was bad news. The government and the Catholic Church didn't like that because they were one, the Catholic Church and the government. So that began the Radical Reformation, eating sausages, and then in 1525, two years later, having adults baptized. So there's so much more I'd want to say on this part of church history and our background. I did a sermon series on this about seven or eight years ago. You could dig it up for you if you like, but it's very interesting church history that we come from. Singly argued that fasting should be entirely voluntar 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 voluntary, voluntary, voluntary. <laughs> Cut that out. Uh, <laughs> Not mandatory. <laughs> Zingley was advancing the Reformation position that Lent was sub subject to individual rule rather than the discipline which was upheld at the time of the Catholic Church. So the Zurich Sausage Rebellion was interpreted as a demonstration of Christian liberty. We're going to have liberty during Lent. We're going to eat sausage. And it's considered to be of similar importance for Switzerland as Martin Luther's 95 Theses in Wittenberg for the German Reformation. So what was the impact of this? The Catholic bishop of the city was so scandalized by this preaching that he called for a mandate prohibiting the preaching of any Reformation doctrine in Switzerland. However, the damage had already been done and Zwingli went on to become an extremely popular and revered figure in Swiss Protestantism. He drew up 67 of his own thesis, similar to Martin Luther, that denounced seven long-standing beliefs of the Church of Rome. Reformations like this have kind of been going on ever since. Every new denomination or breakaway group has drawn up a criticism of the church that they are part of. They rebel. That's why we have. We have at least six different Mennonite denominations. We had one, and then the MDs were part of another one. They didn't like the way the general Mennonites in Russia and Ukraine were doing their thing, um, and so they started it wasn't rebellion, but they went against it and started another denomination. And then there's another denomination. There's about 18,000 of them in the world. So that's how that works. Interesting stuff. This was new at the time, but today we can see it was not a one and done. This idea of separation. The church was one for thousands, thousands of years. We have different groups of Mennonites. We have different groups of Pentecostals. We have this sort of, rebellion is the best word, but kind of going against what's going on there. And I think this is just a human way of life. Part of us loves to rebel. To boycott. To have reform. To protest. Whatever way we can say that we don't agree with the status quo. So we have mass churches in our time here, and massless churches. And the ones who were massless or were more like, hey, we're rebelling against the government. We're not going to let them tell us how to practice the Christian faith. 
We'd have rebellion in churches with music or philosophy of how to connect or not connect with our culture. You know, there was a time when Mennonite Brethren churches only did services in German. And then there's a group of rebellious people that thought if we want to reach the community around us, maybe we should have English services. Why not? Right? So little forms on the spectrum of rebellion. We all have that. We have a denomination based on infant baptism or believer's baptism. And even within believer's baptism, we have sprinkling or immersion. I started reading Philip Yancey's biography and then listened to his um, interview with Carrie New Newhoff on leadership. Very good. He just goes, he just lists some absolutely crazy things, fundamental, fundamentalist Christianity of things that he that he needed to obey to stay in the church or to show that you're a real bona fide Christian. Some of you grew up with these. I remember Art Lowen and others telling me when they got baptized, they had to sign a pledge they would never go to a theater or a pool hall. My mom says when she went to church in Yarrow, she showed up with a sleeveless blouse. Did I say that right? Sleeveless blouse. She was told to go home and put on the sleeves. So, so, you know, even within our generation, we've got rules, and Lent then can sometimes be thrown into those rule things, and we throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I'm here to promote that the idea of Lent is a good idea. These ideas of obediences and practices, things to wear and not to wear, you know, can you wear a hat, can you chew tobacco, you know, all these kinds of things are like, and if you do that, you're not a Christian. So the ideas for obedience then became a litmus test for being a real Christian. And I think Broadway, my 18 years here, have had a good history of working through this, not perfection. We've had people leave because of differences of philosophy and things, not all deserves. Um, but that's that's the way it is. We have whole families, blood relatives that break apart and we're rebellious toward each other because they have differing views on things. So there's the sausage rebellion in 1522. How is this guy going to relate this <laughs> to some scripture passages? So here we go. So how should we celebrate Lent today? In other contexts, there may be great wisdom in adopting Lent as an identifiable season of preparation for Easter. And I think it's good. If we prepare for the birth of Jesus, I think we need to prepare in our hearts for what he was born for, and that was the death and resurrection, his death. All of us need to sanctify or make clean, make holy our calendars and make clear that nothing in the winter and springtime of the year, not Valentine's Day or spring break or March Madness or playoffs, is, is as important as our identity in Christ. How can we put Jesus at the center of how we mark time? I think Lent is good for that. How can we convey the beauty of baptismal identity to seekers and strengthen it for the veteran believers? Lent can be a part of that. How can we practice disciplines in the church life, in our Christian life, without coming to trust in or being overly proud of our practices? So it, it's, it's a hard balance to have these practices. Okay, I, I pray and I fast and I read scripture every day. I have an hour of worship as I walk the river or whatever. And it's like, that can be like, look what I do. 
That's not why you do them. You do them for your inner soul. You do them for yourself. And what people thought Lent was becoming was something to show off. And so we throw out the baby with the bathwater. We need, we are resurrection people. That's what we preach. We don't have a crucified Jesus on our cross. We are a resurrection people. Yet death comes before the resurrection. And too often we rush to the empty tomb without first walking with Jesus to the cross. And that's, I remember the one Lent season we did, we slowly made this room dark. Remember that. With flammable cloth. <laughs> And then we realized we probably shouldn't do that again. And it made it dark. Walking into the darkness of death together is beautiful. We need to spend some time in darkness and really experience what comes up for us in the darkness. To think about, these are things we can think about uh, during Lent. What kind of things control us? And why? What gives meaning to our lives? And how? These are things that you might want to give up, <laughs> you know, to, to give up for life, except the word you hear, or give up for the rest of your life. We need to take stock of our lives, get to know ourselves again, ask ourselves some hard questions like, what should I be embracing? What should I be holding loosely, letting go of? Lent can be a time when we take up the challenge and use the time to get to know ourselves again, who we are when no one is looking or even when everyone is looking. In the darkness of Lent, we are invited to look at areas in our lives where we have allowed bad attitudes to form and take over. Places where we have become lukewarm, cynical, or bitter. Sometimes other things just creep into our lives, and before we know it, they overshadow our love and connection with God. You might want to notice what is stirring in you as you hear this. What kind of things? Those are the kind of things to abstain from, give up. Now, if any of this sounds familiar, these are the words of Kat Anderson from a couple years ago when she did readings for us during our Lent season. It's beautiful. Now, the Lent journey into darkness isn't just about self-examination. It's also about returning. The Hebrew word Lent actually can mean to turn or to return. It's about deep surrender and trust. So in the spirit of Lent, we are called to come back to and to turn and return to God in all these things. The things that internally have carried us away, as well as the external stressors of living in a season of this past pandemic. So giving up some things, abstaining from some things can be a good thing. You can see how you can, they can control you. And you have your own, we all have issues, so we know that can entangle us. That verse, that beautiful verse that uh, Julie read from, the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Part of that is for us, it says, find out what easily entangles you and get rid of it. Sometimes it's sin, sometimes it's not. It can just be, and it becomes an idol, and be a love for the wrong thing. So we need to, so during this time of Lent, and we've only got a few more, day, few more days um, until Good Friday, but I want us to think about these things. Who you are, what controls you, what other things do you need to give up? Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's a couple of assumptions in here that we're hungry, and we're a searching group of human beings. We want these things. It's what makes us human. 
It's what we have in common. We get dismayed. We get fearful. We need to be upheld. And the sooner we realize we are not the ones to uphold ourselves, the better. And so this takes us to what we sang about today, about leaning and believing and trusting in Jesus. The secret is not in ourselves or in a universe. It's in a personal God who knows our every need. So during this time of repentance or thinking of turning around, it's not to ourselves, but it's to God. So repentance, the idea of Lent, gives us an idea to repentance. It's a beautiful word, repentance. It's a rescuing word. It's a relational word. Maybe you've just heard it or heard about it, you know, from what they would call hellfire brimstone pastors. Repent! This is how Jesus says it. Repent. Come to me. It's the greatest, most beautiful thing you can do in your life. Repent. Turn to me. Turn your journey around. Turn your pilgrimage around. Come to me. It's an idea of walking in the way of the Lord. Lord, you can pray during Lent. Repent me. Turn me around. I can't repent myself. I cannot turn myself around. Only you can get me away from, you can give me freedom from these entanglements. Repent me. Make me new. Make me like you. And that takes us to this idea of imitation. We can think about imitation during Lent. That we repent from our sins and turn to God. What does that mean? Well, we need to be like Jesus. So the idea of Lent leads us to imitation. Imitation of who or what? That's Jesus. The idea of imitation is interesting. I remember going to uh, Thailand in church, and that was the place to buy all the fake stuff. It was awesome. I bought my sister an outfit, a Bishop Buffet. I bought a watch, a Rolex watch. I bought all the latest purses for my female friends. Not really. Um, shirts, pants, hats. I bought engagement rings for Sharon there. It was real <laughs> So the definition of an imitation is something that is made to look like something else, not the original. So we can't be the original Jesus, but we are to imitate what he's like. We don't like imitation. I don't like having imitation crabs. Doesn't work for me. But imitation means copying the words and facial expressions and the actions of another person. Sometimes imitation is flattering, but often it's just annoying, like when your little brother does it and drives you crazy. So once we have turned, what are we turning to? What are we going to imitate? And it's Jesus. We are going the wrong way. We are going after false gods. We are imitating the culture around us. That's the big one nowadays we need to preach into, what it means to be a Christian in this culture. And not imitate the culture. I think we follow knockoffs, so to speak. Not the real thing. And we don't want to put our lives in the hands of a knockoff. That Rolex watch didn't last. That beautiful outfit that I gave my sister last in one washing. He was not impressed. But I think it went out of style in the next year anyway, so it doesn't. So Christ is to be the source of our encouragement, our comfort, our common sharing, our tenderness and compassion, not things of the culture. I want to go to Matthew 4, 1 to 11. 
And this gets us to the idea of where this 40 days came from as well. This is the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. Some statements Satan made to him. Powerful statements. Think about that. If you are, if you are the Son of God, and he gave three things that he could do and should do if he would worship him. I think it's interesting, and I think it's good to call the they use the 40 days of Lent to kind of connect it to his 40 days of temptation. And when we think of his 40 days of temptation in the desert, uh, there's three temptations. I don't know if each temptation lasted you know, for a few weeks, but I think when we just think, if we just look at our NIV paragraph title and see, you know, they might say the 40 days of temptation. I don't think that's the best way to think of his 40 days in the desert as a time of temptation. It was certainly part of it. But it was a time of training. It was a time of spiritual practice for Jesus. It wasn't just about overcoming temptation. And we overcame the temptation to be these three things, and that is, he says, no, I'm going to rely only on solar scripture, scripture, as he said it before Martin Luther did. I'm only going to live on what God's tells me I live by the bread of God only, if you are. So it was 40 days of training. Why? For the next three years of temptation. That's what it was for. He was tempted in all kinds of ways, it says in the Bible, during his three years. So I think his 40 days of temptation in the desert was really a training time for his next three years of temptation. Especially the trial, as you read it, and his temptation to let the cup pass him and not go to the cross. The temptations and the suffering and the crucifixion. Because this is what the religious leaders said. If you are, interesting, same word. If you are the Son of God, tell us. All you need to do is speak some truth to him and he could have avoided crucifixion. He did speak truth, they didn't like his truth. Pilate. If you are the king of the Jews, you surely don't look like a king. These are your followers? Seriously? If you are, Pilate was shocked. He asked the same idea. If you are. Again, Jesus was tempted right there. Soldiers. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Same word for Satan. If you are. The thief on the cross, if you are, save yourself and us. Just like Satan said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Throw yourself down and God will protect you. But he didn't. If you are who you say you are, surely you want everyone to know you have supernatural power. If you are who you say you are, you must be able to save yourself. It says you came to save that which was lost, come and save yourself first. You can't save others if you're dead, but you can't even save yourself. You who are very nature of God and you are the Lord. What are you doing on the cross? That's what, that was what was amazing. If you are this Messiah person, what are you doing up there? And we need to think about that for a minute. What was he doing up there? Devotion. 
voice of Satan is sometimes the voice of common sense and reason, unfortunately. So we do that. If you are the son of God, this certainly cannot be the way things end. This makes no sense, according to the world culture. That's what Pilate thought. That's what the world leaders thought. That's even what his disciples thought. After three years of being taught, they thought this was not the right way to handle it. They thought the Messiah should be like David, fighting the new Goliath, the government. He would be a warrior king. He would be a man after David's own heart, David's own passion. This is the background to all the mockery of Jesus during that time. If you are, you're not supposed to end up dead in your early 30s, killed like a criminal. You're supposed to be leading your people to victory over the Romans, if you are. You certainly should not be hanging on a cross. What happened to those words of eternal life? What happened to the words of abundant and meaningful life? Jesus, you're not living, you're hanging on the cross. What happened to those words of rest and peace and hope? For the crowds, the cross is a failed Messiah. Jesus could have commanded and summoned hundreds of angels to protect him as he said so in the garden. He doesn't do that. He hangs there. The agony is squeezing out to the last drop. In the garden, he had asked for the cup, the cross, to pass by him. Is there another way? Can't there be another way to go? Can't everyone just receive eternal life without them suffering and dying? In the garden, the disciples of God's will was lingering. Nebuchadnezzar just crashes in the desert as soon as they have resisted. Follow and obey God. So how do we imitate, how do we follow Jesus in this way? That's what Lent serious about some things. Our decisions, our frustrations, our temptations, our addictions, our entrapments, we all have those. List them down during this time and say, Lord, repent. Repent me. Turn me around from these entrapments, from this sin that is entangling me. And this is about grace, and I want to talk about grace here, because this is what was missed, I think, and this is what Luther saw, that the righteous shall live by We don't have to add to what Jesus did on the cross at all. Grace. It's when someone is on your side. Someone is for you instead of against you. It's showing favor towards you that is unmerited. In other words, there's nothing that you can do to gain it. It is given freely. That's grace. That's what Luther was Grace cannot be grace if it's not free. God is not bound to work in us based on our putting up our own resources or deserving first. That's maybe why people threw out the idea of grace. Thought, well, I do these things, now God is obliged to do this, and so they just throw the whole thing out. Not, that's why I think there's Lent and liberty, and these things go together. The all-sufficient God cannot be constrained by anything outside of himself. It would not be grace if it was contingent on us adding 2 to 5%, so that now God will act. God is not constrained by anything outside of himself. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy. We need to see God's grace like this. It's a perpetual mist or rain around us. It's not like we're going along and we sin and now all of a sudden the grace is gone. You know, I'm, I'm not right with God anymore. We lived in Calgary for 10 years, and we had a pass for the Calgary Zoo, one of the greatest zoos in the world.
two or three or four of these in the world, great city. We were there a few years ago. We went into the butterfly enclosure. Has anyone been into the butterfly enclosure at Studio Calgary Zoo? It's wet. It's dense. Well, grace is like the humidity and mist in the butterfly enclosure. It's like the humidity and mist in a greenhouse. It's always there around you, no matter what. It's like the mist in the vegetable section of your grocery store. Just next time you're buying groceries, stick your head under the sprinkler. <laughs> and you're buying your artichokes, whatever else you had in your grocery store. That's the grace of God. It's a mist. It's always around you. Always around you. Psalm 72, 6. He will be like rain falling on a mown field. Like showering waters, like showers watering the earth. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. So now we then move to this idea of Lent and liberty and some passages I want to just read and speak about in liberty. Galatians 5 1 and Galatians 5 13. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. This is what happened, I think, with Luther and Zwingli is they saw that the freedom they have in Christ has set them free from trying to do all kinds of things to appease God or curry favor with God. In the book of Galatians, they went to circumcision to try to get right with God. And Paul was saying, no, 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 no. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You don't have to do all these rules and regulations. And there's a whole list of them in Galatians. You can look them up later. He says, stand firm in the freedom you have in Christ. Don't be burdened by all these slavery things. And so what happened was that early church and maybe the sausage rebellion people just, they saw having to do Lent was like not believing this verse. We have liberty. And it's not what this verse is about. This verse is about what saves us. And I think Lent is about how we grow different practices so we can grow. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. Yes, you have freedom, you have liberty, but it's not for yourself. It's for others. So one of the great things, perhaps, to do for Lent, too, is to serve people. Do something for people. It's not just about not doing things. It can be doing that sort of thing. So there are two themes in Galatians. Who are the true people of God? Israel or the church, we would say, no, it's Israel now. I mean, it's the church now. And how should they govern their lives? Follow the Spirit, he says. True freedom expresses itself in serving others and loving others, not satisfying selfish desires. I was visiting a, a young prisoner a few years ago, and he was very, uh, he was in his early 20s. Been He had 400 days left when he was supposed to be free. And I said, Greg, why don't you, so how's your, how's your, are you doing good behavior? You could have got out the last time. He said, uh, no, I haven't carried, I've actually been back. I've uh, made sure I didn't get back with the prison. I said, why is that? I'm just not interested in listening to authority. Don't like it. That was his natural inclination. 
And it's not just Greg. I think we all have that sense. I want to be my own boss. And they went and bring us around to, no, this, this is who our boss is. And it's freedom. It's freedom. High school graduates leave home and they think they see freedom. They're free from parents' rules and regulations. Freedom to do whatever they want, having absolute control of their life until months later when they need someone to watch that over them. Freedom is doing what I want. They see it as an absence, an absence of limitations in the presence of self-sufficiency. That's not what freedom in Christ is. Freedom is ours because of Christ. We need to stand firm in this. Don't go into a yoke of slavery. Do not give into the social pressure to fit in with the false teachers, Paul says. Just because it has become the race does not mean you do it. Stand firm in Jesus. The yoke is seen as a crushing weight that slumps you down. If under the yoke of slavery or all these different laws to try to be right with God, you will be burdened to keep trying and trying. Where does it stop? Have I done enough? So don't look at Lent like that. Because you have freedom, we can do Lent for Jesus and our rebellion. He died. He bore our condemnation. How can we bring our putting the yoke back on? And this was the problem with the sausage rebellion. They saw not eating meat as going back to a type of slavery. Lent does not merit favor with God, but it's a practice to help us live free from things. That's why you might want to give up something or do something. This is freedom. Maybe perhaps you remember applying to university. I wonder if I'll get in. My mark's good. That's not the way it's said. Your marks are good in Christ. Christ wrote these down. He died on the cross for your rebellion. We have freedom to be what we're supposed to be. A horse out of a stall and running in the field. That's what the horse glories in. And for some, there's nothing more beautiful and glorious than a horse running free. That's what we're called to have and to be. Does that make sense? The sausage rebellion of 50 and 60 years. So we're set free. To be what God wants us to be. We're set free to, to do what God wants us to do. We can take off the old clothes, renew the mind, and read scripture, worship, we abstain from some things that can easily entangle us. And it's your personal vision. You know what's entangling you. It's a freedom not to indulge in the flesh, but to control the flesh. Freedom is not to exploit our neighbor, but to serve one another. True freedom liberates us to find joy in serving Christ and serving others. This is what Jesus was like. He had true freedom. And it is his joy to present us to his Father. And it says this in Luke 24, 25. To him, that is Jesus, who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Thanks for what Jesus great joy to him. Amen. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, 
future evermore.